Hello everyone, and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast. The history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. I'm your host, J.P. Bristow. This is Season 1, The Forest, the Steppe, and the Birth of the Russian Empire. Episode 12, The Scythian Legacy. This is the last episode of 2021. I started five months ago with some idea of what I wanted to achieve in terms of listeners by the end of the year in order to decide whether anybody out there was interested and it was worth carrying on. I beat those targets several weeks ago. The podcast has been growing strongly, and thank you very much to all of you for listening. An especially big thank you to all of you who have been so kind as to leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. As this episode draws this series on the Scythians to a close, if you would like to investigate the subject further, check out the resources page on the website, the Russian Empire History Podcast.com, for links to books on the Scythians, Sarmatians, and the Early Steppe. Now, on with the show. If you have been listening to this podcast since the beginning, you might be wondering why I've spent so much time on a group of ancient peoples who do not seem to be directly related to the Russian Empire. Well, it goes back to our starting point. Way back at the beginning, we raised the question of what is the Russian Empire? What is Eurasia? And the idea that Russia has taken as much from the steppe as it did from Europe. Now, I'm sure most of you have a set of assumptions about a shared European heritage, Greeks, Romans, Christianity, and so on, that frames your thinking without any conscious effort. But what about the steppe? Apart from maybe the Mongols, the steppe lies largely outside of our historical narratives. So if we are going to say that the steppe was fundamental to the development of the Russian Empire, we need to establish that the steppe was not, in fact, a blank, sparsely populated and wild abyss lying between the civilised population centres of China and the Mediterranean, but a place that had cultures of its own that had something to contribute. So, by starting at the beginning, with the emergence of the first nomadic cultures on the steppe, I have hoped to show the importance of the steppe, not only to Russia and the other regions adjoining it, but its key role in world development generally. A world without the steppe could be a world without Indo-European languages, chariots, horses. There is no part of Eurasia, in its simple geographical sense, that has not been impacted by the steppe. And although who exactly the Scythians were might have been largely forgotten for centuries, they also had an enormous and far-reaching legacy. So let's look at a couple of aspects of that legacy. Let's start with the Scythian military legacy. In the previous episode, I said that I would come back to the Alans, and this is where I want to do that. I'm sure that many of you have heard of the Vandals, a Germanic confederation that came into conflict with the Roman Empire eventually resulting in the sack of Rome in 455 and gifting us the word vandalism. But you may not be aware that from the early 5th century on, 
The Vandals were led by the Rex Vandalorum Ialanorum, the king of the Vandals and the Alans. As also mentioned in the previous episode, the Sarmatians, and the Alans in particular, had been coming into closer contact with the Germanic peoples from the 2nd century onwards, and joined Ostrogothic, Visigothic, and Lombard confederations in various wars and campaigns. At the famous Battle of Adrianople in 378, the Gothic victory resulting in the death of Emperor Valens was decided by a cavalry charge. The cavalry was led by a commander called Safrax, an Iranian name, and composed mainly of Alans and Roxolani. Ahead of the migration period, the name given to that time around the fall of the Western Roman Empire that saw large-scale Germanic migrations into Western Europe, the Germanic peoples were moving through or in close contact with the steppe and forming political and military alliances with its peoples. This process would eventually lead to the absorption of the Sarmatians and Alans as they lost their ethnic and linguistic identity and merged with other groups, resulting in their subsequent obscurity. But it was a two-way process, and the steppe warriors left their mark on the Germanic peoples as well. The first mention of the Vandals was by Pliny the Elder, writing in the 1st century, referring to a Germanic group on the Baltic coast. Over the next couple of centuries, they drifted south into the Carpathian Basin, bringing them into contact with the westernmost Sarmatian groups. Like the other Germanic groups, the Vandals were an agricultural people and fought on foot. As I've said previously, identities at this time were quite fluid. The Sarmatians did not keep slaves, and as a result, they are believed to have absorbed defeated peoples and been quite open to absorbing other peoples generally. The Vandals and Sarmatians seem to have mixed quite easily from the very beginning. Greek and Roman writers mention Vandal leaders with Iranian-derived names, and although records are scarce, they were likely raiding together like other Germanic Sarmatian alliances. The Germanic tribes elected their leaders through an assembly called a thing, and it is probable that the Alans elected their war leaders by acclaim in a similar way to other steppe peoples. So their organisational systems would have been compatible. This mixing with the Alans had a profound effect on the Vandals that would come to distinguish them from other Germanic peoples. While other Germanic groups, such as the Goths, crossed into the Pontic steppe and acquired some cavalry to fight alongside their foot troops, militarily the Vandals seem to have been completely Sarmatianized. From the time they moved out of Carpathia and across Europe, until their war with the Byzantines in North Africa. They were an entirely cavalry force. Where they used foot soldiers, they were supplied by non-Vandal allies or vassals. Byzantine historian Procopius of Caesarea wrote describing the Vandals that they did not know how to go into battle on foot, 
They were all horsemen and used spears and swords for the most part. Procopius, who was an advisor to the great Byzantine general Belisarius, as well as a historian, described the Vandals' warfare extensively, noting their difficulty with sieges, which were always a problem for steppe horse warriors. They captured cities across North Africa with quick surprise attacks and then demolished the city walls, showing that they were quite aware that the walls could be a problem if the cities subsequently rebelled. All this shows that the Sarmatians had caused a fundamental change in Vandal culture before they set out on their big migration. One of the triggers for the migration was the mass arrival of the Huns in the mid-4th century. This pushed the Sarmatians, including the Alans, out of the Pontic steppe, and a large number seemed to have moved into Pannonia and the Hungarian plain, where the Vandals and Sarmatians were already neighbours. Early in the 5th century, a group of Alans, Yazigis and Vandals moved across the Rhine. Franks, serving as Roman federate, attempted to put up resistance and appeared to be close to winning the battle, even killing the Hasding Vandal war leader, Godigizel. But a charge by the Alans won the day, and they crossed into Gaul. According to Gregory of Tours, one group of Alans broke away and allied with the Romans, but the rest remained with the Vandals, raiding across Gaul for the next couple of years. In 409, the Vandals and the Alans crossed the Pyrenees and seized control of Spain. Around ten years later, the arriving Visigoths, led by Valia, inflicted a severe defeat on the Alans, including killing their leader, Attaches. Following this death, the Alans asked the Vandal king Gunderic for formal union with his people, and from this point until the destruction of the Vandals in 534, the king of the Vandals used the title Rex Vandalorum and Alanorum, and it appears that this union was a confederation of equals. Although the name of the Vandals has stuck more in succeeding centuries, near-contemporary historians like Orosius, Prosper of Aquitaine and Hydatius record that it was the Alans who led the migratory force. There were more Sarmatians in Pannonia when they began their crossing into Gaul than Vandals, and the regions where the Alans established control in Spain were bigger than those taken by the Vandals. The Alan in Catalan, for instance, comes from the Alans. We do not need to pursue the Vandals and Alans all the way into North Africa and through to their eventual defeat by the Byzantine Romans, after which Emperor Justinian I added Alanicus Vandalicus Africanus to his title. Suffice it to say, that depictions found at Carthage and other sites, as well as in contemporary writings, show the Vandals dressed in steppe style and hunting and fighting on horseback in the steppe style also. 
the aim of this digression outside of the territorial focus of interest of this podcast was to show that the process of Sarmatian assimilation into other peoples was a two-way street. While the Sarmatians appear to have eventually adopted the Germanic language and identity of the Vandals, the Vandals became completely Sarmatianized in their culture, abandoning a sedentary agricultural social structure with foot-soldier-based armies for Sarmatian heavy cavalry, raiding, and a warrior class that would never dream of tilling the soil. So how does all this play into the Scythian legacy? Let's step back to Augustus. The Roman imperial army, before contact with Sarmatians raiding across the Danube, was almost entirely infantry. Wars with the Sarmatians and Parthians changed this. Trajan created the Contari heavy lancers in emulation of the Sarmatians, and under Hadrian, the Cataphracti or Clibinari, heavy cavalry was developed in the east. By the time of Diocletian, a third of the Roman army was cavalry. We have already seen how the Sarmatians converted the Germanic Vandals to their style of warfare, but it did not end there. As already noted, the Vandals and Alans crossed into Gaul, defeated the Franks, and ravaged the land before moving on to Spain. But a group of Alans split off, entered an alliance with Rome, and remained behind. They would settle in Burgundy, forming a key part of that kingdom's impressive military, and in Armorica, where they remained a formidable heavy cavalry force until the 12th century, and influenced the transformation of the Normans from Viking raiders into the preeminent heavy cavalry of their time. Like other Germanic peoples, the Franks fought on foot. As Procopius wrote, quote, They had a small body of cavalry about their leader, and these were the only ones armed with spears, while all the rest were foot soldiers, with neither bows nor spears. Each man carried a sword and a shield and one axe, end quote. Agathius, Another Byzantine historian wrote that, quote, The Franks do not serve on horseback, except in very rare cases. Fighting on foot is both a habitual and a national custom. End quote. The Alans of Orléans fought at the Battle of Chalons, where Attila the Hun's invasion was defeated. Defeated the Goths at the Battle of Orléans in 463, and the Franks in 466. At the beginning of the 7th century, the Alans of Armorica also defeated the Franks under Clovis. But the Alans, like Clovis, had adopted Chalcedonian Christianity, and the two reached an agreement on alliance against the Visigoths, who had taken up Arian Christianity. This resulted in the Alanic heavy cavalry being integrated into the Merovingian military. And under the influence of this Sarmatian contingent, Frankish warriors took to horseback. The steppe heavy cavalry tradition, combined with Germanic culture and Christian influences, to evolve into the chivalry of France and the medieval knight. 
So here we have the first point of the Scythian legacy, the medieval knight. Through the Carolingian Empire, the Crusades and the Normans, who were directly influenced by the Alans of Brittany and became the most impressive force of knights. Heavy armoured cavalry dominated Western Europe and the Mediterranean for centuries, and it can be traced all the way back to those first mounted warriors to arrive from the Altai into the Western Steppe. So, were all the Sarmatians absorbed into the Germanic peoples? Almost, but not quite. When the Gothic invasion drove the Sarmatians into the Hungarian plain and alliance with the Vandals, there was one group of Alans that migrated south into the North Caucasus. They created a successful Alan kingdom in the Middle Ages, and their descendants, the Ossetians, are still there, speaking the last surviving language from the Scythosarmatian language family. They will appear in our story again when we reach the Russian expansion into the Caucasus. Let's turn to Scythian trade. Although most famous as warriors, the impact of the trade system created by the Scythians was perhaps even greater. The Silk Road is sometimes referred to as a trade route linking China and the Roman Empire, as if it was used for trade between the two, with caravans traipsing their way from one end of Eurasia to the other. But it is 8,000 kilometres from Beijing to Rome. If there had not been people interested in trade living in between them, how could they ever have come into contact? Scythian peoples controlled the steppe corridor and much of Central Asia for centuries, trading freely and enthusiastically with all their neighbours and giving rise to the first flowering of the Silk Roads. Although we may think primarily of silk, metals and other trade goods, the flow of exchange went far beyond that. Apples and walnuts come from the steppe. The steppe trade routes brought peaches, persimmons and apricots from the east into Europe and took melons, grapes, pistachios and wine from the west into China. Grains, peas and other edible plants were also transferred from east to west and north to south and vice versa with a massive impact on the affected societies. Ideas were also in all likelihood transferred. It is difficult to say anything with certainty on this subject, as the Scythians had no writing, and therefore we know little about this aspect of their culture. We do know that a few Scythians were recognised as philosophers by the Greeks, although to be fair, some do claim that Anacharsis, for instance, never actually existed. And we know that clear parallels appeared between Indian and Greek philosophy in the period after the Scythians had reached the Western Steppe and established trade with the Greek city-states, but before the Greeks and Indians had come into more direct contact via Persia. This exchange can also perhaps be seen in that within the space of a few decades, thinkers in the great civilizations around the periphery of the steppe, in Greece, China and India, 
suddenly began producing the unprecedented works on the state and government of classical philosophy. We don't have proof of direct links between them, but it seems strangely coincidental, and it may be that these ideas were circulated along the trade routes along with goods. Certainly, in later centuries, the steppe would effectively transmit both Christianity and Islam deep into Asia, so it is an intriguing possibility. Over the period from the Scythians to the Turks and the establishment of the Maritime Silk Road, trade through the steppe would wax and wane, but the periods of high trade always coincided with the presence of a strong steppe power and fell away in periods where new migrations and the collapse of confederations caused disruption. So the legacy of the Scythians also includes the Eurasian trade system that enriched the periphery of central Eurasia, facilitating the exchange of new goods, horses, foods and ideas among Greece, Persia, India and China. As historian Christopher Beckwith writes in Empires of the Silk Road, quote, While the Scythians are best known as fierce warriors, their greatest accomplishment was the development of a trade system described by Herodotus and other early Greek writers, that linked Greece, Persia and the lands to the east. A bustling land-based international commerce developed in central Eurasia as a direct result of the trade interests of the Scythians, Sogdians, Xiongnu and other early central Eurasians. Although some long-distance trade had existed for millennia, it only became a significant economic force under the Scythians and other steppe Iranians. The central Eurasians traded with people on their borders, whoever they were. They traded with the civilizations of Europe, the Near East, South Asia and East Asia, and indirectly connected the peripheral cultures to each other through Central Asia. During the heyday of Scythian power, the peripheral city-state cultures of high antiquity also reached their apogee. End quote. I think you'll agree that's quite a legacy for a bunch of nomads. But that's not where I want to stop. First, let's just take a quick look at Scythians in Russian culture. Scythians and the Russian Empire The Bavarian Chronicle, written in the 13th century, describes the Slavs as the descendants of Scythians and Sarmatians, an idea that would be developed in Polish, Russian and Ukrainian histories over the next few centuries, as well as by Western historians such as Edward Gibbon, who also asserted that the Slavs were the descendants of the Sarmatians. Particularly influential was the Kievan synopsis. I'm not going to get into it in detail right now, as it will be important to look at a few centuries along in our story. But in brief, the synopsis, full title, A Brief Collection of Various Chronicles on the Origins of the Slavic Russian People and the First Rulers of the God-Protected City of Kiev, was produced in Kiev to advocate for the common origins and identity of Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians 
in an ancient Russian state and a single Orthodox Russian people, especially in opposition to Polish Catholics, for liberating the Orthodox Slavs under Polish rule and to facilitate the integration of Ukrainian elites into the Russian ruling class. The synopsis, which was widely regarded as an accurate description of Rus and Slavic origins until well into the 19th century, saw the Sarmatians as the forerunners of the first Slavs. In his ancient Russian history, polymath Mikhail Lomonosov, in whose honour Moscow State University is named, drew on the synopsis to claim that Russians were related to Roxolani and Sarmatians. In the second half of the 18th century, the governor of Astrakhan, Vasily Tatishev, wrote the Historia Russiskaya, the Russian history, the first attempt at a critical history of the Russian people. He considered that the Sarmatians and Slavs were different peoples, but the Slavs had assimilated the Sarmatians. In 1787, Catherine the Great wrote her own Notes on Russian History, where she states that the northern Scythians spoke the same language as the Slavs and worked the Scythians into her concept of the development of the Russian national character. And if you think back to episode 6, Rediscovering the Scythians, this was right around the time that Russia was moving into the Pontic steppe, those Kurgans were being investigated, and exhibitions of Scythian gold were creating a furore among the educated class. As the notion of the Scandinavian influence on the Rus, known as Normanism, developed in the second half of the 19th century, there was a corresponding wave of anti-Normanism that continued to link Slavs to Scythians. In particular, there was an attempt to link Herodotus ploughing Scythians and the Slavs, an idea that still has some support in more Kiev-centric views of Russian history. However, genetic studies have put an end to the idea that modern Slavs are descendants of the Scythians. But alongside the idea of Scythians as the literal ancient ancestors of the Russians, there was a romanticised image of the ancient steppe warriors that also held a certain place in the imagination and self-conceptualization of certain Russians at various times. In the Patriotic War of 1812 against Napoleon's invading army, some of the Russian leadership referred to their strategy as the Scythian plan, linking the idea of withdrawal deep into the country, scorched earth, and raids on the enemy, directly to Herodotus' story of the Persian War against the Scythians. Pyotr Trykovich, a writer serving with Barclay de Tolle, published a patriotic pamphlet declaring that Napoleon had, quote, forgotten the story of the brave Scythians, the death of Cyrus, the shameful flight of Darius, the retreat of Alexander the Great, end quote. As the 19th century went on, Advocates of the Russian conquest of Central Asia also appealed to Russia's supposed Scythian origins, arguing that as the descendants of the Aryans, they had a civilizing mission to return to their ancient homeland. Prince Esper Ukhtomsky, a Russian diplomat and close confidant of Nicholas II, 
promoted the idea that Russia's supposed Scythian legacy made it closer to India than to England, and that Russia and Asia were natural allies against an alien West. In the early 20th century, the Russian arts went through a Scythian moment. Prokofiev produced his Scythian suite, and Stravinsky, his Rite of Spring, was set designed by Nikolai Rurik, an artist specialising in scenes of ancient Rus. Modernist writers Alexander Bloch and Andrei Bieli, and other poets, cultural figures and politicians, formed the Scythian group, combining an interest in the occult, mysticism, anti-Semitic and anti-Chinese conspiracy theories, with claims of Russia's special messianic role in leading Christian Aryan spiritual rebirth. We are the last Aryans, declaimed Bloch, and during the First World War, the group published a journal, The Scythian, supporting socialist revolution and denouncing the bourgeois West. In 1918, as the latest round of peace talks between Russia and Germany failed once again, Bloch wrote his last poem, The Scythians, a cri de coeur embodying the movement's worldview. Speaking as Russia personified, he alternates between pleading and threatening, accepting the idea of Russia as barbarian Asians with defiant pride and declaring that it is those barbarian Russians that have been standing between prosperous and carefree Europe and the true threat of the Mongolian hordes. For this, Europe offered no thanks, rather only exploitation and greed. And so Russia will turn its back on Europe too. There is a link to a subtitled reading of the poem in the show blog post. I recommend watching. It's quite dramatic, and Russian poetry just never sounds right in English. As we will see over the course of this podcast, this kind of romantic exceptionalism, based on the steppe, Asian, so to speak, side of Russian history, will sit alongside a counter-trend of defining Russianness in opposition to the nomads of the steppe, and to some extent this continues today. Join me next time as we turn to the Turkic peoples, the second largest group in Russia after the Slavs, from their origins in the east to the establishment of their early states on the Volga. I will be taking some time off for the holidays and the Southern Hemisphere summer vacations, so look out for the next episode on the last Sunday of January. Just a reminder again that there are some links to recommended books on the resource page for those of you who would like to read more, as well as a fuller bibliography in the episode blog post. You can get in touch with me via the website, therussianempirehistorypodcast.com, Twitter or Facebook, or by email to hello at therussianempirehistorypodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of you who will be celebrating, and I will see you next year. Mm-hmm.